Mark 6, 1-7 He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark this year to take a look at uh, the life of Jesus. That's what we're reading in the Gospel of Mark. We're taking a look at the life of Jesus. We're, we're, we're kind of honing in on who he really is and why he really matters. And so, uh, so far, Jesus, as we've seen, he began his ministry in Mark chapter 1 by announcing a message, by proclaiming good news. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He began his ministry by announcing the good news of what we call the kingdom. That he came to push back the kingdom of darkness uh, to fix what's been broken by sin. The brokenness that exists both in, out there in creation, but also the brokenness that exists right here in our hearts. And all the other ways that creation groans, longing for redemption. Uh, but also the brokenness that, that's here in our hearts with our, with our pride, with our sin that separates us from God and, and how our hearts just cry out for redemption and for restoration because of it. No matter where you're at this morning, no matter where you are at with this Christianity thing, you have to admit that every single one of us longs for something better. Every single one of us longs for something more than what this world has to offer. That's why C.S. Lewis says that if we find in ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's the whole point of Jesus. That's the whole point of why he came. That's the point of what we're reading in the Gospel of Mark. He came to usher in and bring that new world. That's why we saw in chapter 1 that his primary message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying it's near, it's here. And he didn't just declare this message with his words, he displayed it with his, his works. And we saw that in the way that he healed the sick, in the way that he invited the social outs, outcasts that everyone else ignored, took, invited them into his table, in the way that he exercised a demonized man, in the way that he raised a dead man. And the crowds in the region, they're talking about him. There's a stir about him. They're talking about this Jesus and people are drawn to him. But today, the key theme that we're unpacking is that while there's some people who are sort of drawn to Jesus, others are actually repelled by him. While some people are attracted to him, there are still others who are, are, are kind of offended by him. And we see that in our culture today too, don't we? Like that while some people even today are attracted by the person and work of Jesus, others still are, are offended by him. 
How do we make sense of that? And so in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, I want to to walk you through three points we're going to look at this morning. First, that Jesus is offensive. Secondly, why Jesus is offensive, specifically here in this context, in our verses, in Nazareth, his hometown. And lastly, what we, what we do with the offensiveness of Jesus. How do we make sense of this? What do we, what do, we do with the fact that Jesus is offensive? So let's, let's tackle that first one. First, Jesus is offensive. Read verse 1 through 3 with me. It says, He, Jesus, went away from there where he was doing ministry, and he came now to his hometown, which is Nazareth. And Jesus' disciples, they followed him there. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took, what does it say? Offense at him. They took offense at him. So here, we see that not everyone is excited about Jesus, right? Not everyone is excited about Jesus. And you know what I love about that insight? (laughs) The Bible is honest. The Bible's honest here. Like some of you are walking in here with the assumption that, you know, following Jesus might be hip and might be like what's cool right now. But Mark is going to throw some shade on that assumption, right? Like he's going to show us here that some people in Jesus's own hometown were not fans of him at all. That's why it straight up says in verse three, they took offense at him. That word offense there is the Greek word skandalizo, where we get our English word scandal from. So in otherwise, or in other words, they felt sort of scandalized by Jesus. And so the idea here is not just that they had like a minor sort of disagreement with him, but they felt hostility toward him. And this is a, this is a different reaction, right? This is a jarring reaction compared to what we saw in, in previous chapters, where flocks of people are sort of lining up to hear him speak, They're lining up to touch his robe. And here in Jesus' own hometown, we see that he's met with hostility. I love how the historian J.P. Meyer describes this. He says, what is beyond dispute is that in the ministry of two or three years, which is how long Jesus had his ministry, Jesus of Nazareth attracted and infuriated his contemporaries. He mesmerized and alienated the ancient world. And he unleashed a movement that has done the same ever since and thus changed the course of history forever. You see that? It says some people are attracted to Jesus while others are actually infuriated by him. We already saw in Mark chapter 3, we saw a little bit of this earlier, that while some people were marveling at Jesus, there was two groups of people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, which were both two very powerful groups, but on the opposite sides of the aisle. The Herodians were sort of like the left-wing elitists. The Pharisees were the right-wing elitists. And these two groups were longtime cultural enemies. They hated each other with a passion, but they had a greater passion and agreement that Jesus had to go. They didn't like what he had to say, and so they plotted to kill him. And now here we are in Nazareth. 
not, not with the, the big powerful parties, but with a small town in Nazareth, Jesus' own hometown. And there's a tiny hillside village out in the country. That's where Nazareth is. Not in the city like the Herodians and Pharisees. And, and there, in this small village, he gets opposition there too. And so here in chapter 6, six chapters into the Gospel of Mark, we've already seen that there's different people that are sort of hating on Jesus, right? Two very different kinds of people, the big town elites and the small town sort of rural folk, the country folk. The rich and the poor, the moralists like the Pharisees and the relativists like the Herodians, all of them are hating on Jesus. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? All these different groups that are naturally skeptical of each other are equally offended by Jesus. How does that happen? And it's the reason is because Jesus offends different people in different ways. He offends different people in different ways. For example, in, in sort of a Western postmodern culture, you'll find that, uh, that you know, people in, a, in sort of a postmodern culture will love certain things about Christianity. Like we love to talk about that. They love to talk about grace and about forgiveness, and about mercy. They're like, hey, we can get behind that. But as soon as you start talking about how Jesus is the one true God and Savior, people start getting uncomfortable, start getting shifty. But if you go to a more maybe conservative, traditional culture, like in parts of Asia or in the Near East, and you start talking about how there's only one true worldview, they'd be like, yeah, I can get behind that. I, I can see how that, that, that could be. But once you start talking about forgiving your enemy, showing mercy, they're like, do you have no honor? Right? Like they think that you're crazy. We see this in our culture, even like with young people today, people are on the younger spectrum, like millennials, Generation Z. They love when Christianity talks about authenticity, right? Authenticity, honesty, just knowing yourself. But as soon as you start talking about how God calls us not just to know ourselves, but to die to ourselves, to be a new self in Christ, once you start talking about how our main problem is not just falling short of your potential, but falling short of the glory of God, they don't like that. Why does this happen? Why is it that there's some things that, that attract us to Jesus, but other things, other groups that will be repelled by him? And in the Gospel of John, we see, which is another gospel, Jesus says that the reason people hate him is because he is not of this world. That's why they hate him. The world hates him because he's not from it. He's the son of God. His very identity and who he is is opposite of our very nature. And so once you embrace the truth that Jesus is the son of God, once you embrace the truth that Jesus is truly Lord, that G the Jesus who walked the earth, who could be heard and seen and, and touched, once you embrace that he was in fact the image of the invisible God, the son of God, then everything changes. Everything changes for you. Everything you think about who you are, about why you are, about what the world is here for just totally changes. It's impossible for your world to be the same once you admit that Jesus is the son of God. It just rocks you to your core. And that's why Jesus offends. Because look, if he really is Lord, if he really is the son of God, if he's not of this world, if he is the transcendent God and savior that we need, then following him, following him will always require that you give something up in your natural state in order to follow him. 
It will always require maybe that you change some way of thinking in order to follow him. That's why Jesus offends. So ask yourself, even if you're a believer in Christ this morning, ask yourself, what area in my life does Jesus offend? What is it that he's calling me to, to give up in order to follow him? That I, I just don't like that. What way of thinking maybe needs to change in order for me to really say, he's my God. He's my savior. I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to walk in his ways. What area of your life are you holding on to that you need to give up? What do you need to change in order to truly follow him? You see, the big irony, the big irony for us is that the Jesus that, that you shape, that just kind of fits conveniently within your own natural desires, can't really be your Lord in any real sense of that word. The Jesus that fits with your own desires cannot be your Lord in any real sense of that word. He cannot be your God. He cannot be your Savior in any real sense of any of those words. Because if he fits with your own desires, then he can't change you. Then he's not from another world. He's not transcendent. He can't change you. He can't transform you. He can't challenge you because he's just you. You made him in your own image. But if Jesus is real, if he's real, if he really is the son of God, then Jesus will offend some part of you that needs to die in order to follow him. That's why he's offensive. Scriptures call us to die to ourselves, to pick us our crosses, and to follow him. That's why it says that. So I want to kind of zoom from this macro level that we've been at and, and go down to sort of a micro level to talk about why specifically Jesus was offensive to people in his hometown in Nazareth. Let's look at, let's look at that. This is our second point. Why he's so offensive in Nazareth. Look at verses 2 and 3 again with me. It says, verse 2, that on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him in his hometown, they were what? They were astonished. But then it says they started saying, where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given, or what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and, not, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Look, something you need to know about Nazareth, uh, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but just uh, alluded to it, but Nazareth was a tiny place. It was a tiny village. Scholars tell us that the population was probably like 500 tops. Like that's more people, that's just barely more the amount of people than I graduated high school with. 500 people tops. Like you could fit probably 500 people in this room, right? 500 people in this room. So you could fit the entire town, the village of Nazareth in this gym. Jesus was a small town boy. And what that means is everyone knew him. Everyone was familiar with him. And so I want you to picture the scene here beginning in verse 2. 
It's the Sabbath, right? It's the Sabbath, the Jewish day of worship, and Jesus is in his hometown teaching in the local synagogue. And so this was likely the synagogue that he grew up in as a child. And so you have all kinds of people that are coming out to hear him teach. You've got family. You've got friends of his. You've got neighbors that he grew up with. These are all familiar faces that are just piling into the synagogue. And the word has gone out about his miracles and about his teaching. And these people are trying to reconcile what they know about Jesus and their familiarity with him. They're trying to reconcile what they know about Jesus. And with his, they're trying to reconcile that with his divine teaching and his divine works. Verse 2 says that they're astonished at first. But then they start firing a series of questions that just sort of reveals their hostility. Verse 2, it says, they, they ask, where did he get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the, isn't this the carpenter? Now, now, that's a slam against Jesus because he, he, he has a common job in the area, which there's nothing wrong with having a common job in Nazareth in and of itself, except that the fact that he was a carpenter points out that he had no formal rabbinical training, no formal theological training to be teaching in the synagogues. Jesus didn't go to rabbi school. What was he doing there? How does he have this wisdom, they ask. And then verse 3, they ask, hey, isn't this Mary's boy? Right? Isn't this Mary's boy? Like in verse 2, they're drawn in by his teaching, but then they're like, wait a second. That's Mary's kid. Like, he played basketball with my kid, right? Like, I know him. I remember it was like when he was a toddler running around in, in diapers. And the bottom line here that Mark wants us to get across is that, wants to get across to us is that their conclusion, their assumptions, their conclusion is that this Jesus we're familiar with, <laughs> there can't be anything special about him. There's nothing special about him. Why would the great Messiah that's been prophesied, why would the great Messiah and Savior King come from Nowheresville, Nazareth? A carpenter. His job is common. He has no formal training. And so they took offense. You can kind of feel the tension there in the synagogue. Like if you're expecting a homecoming party for Jesus, this is not it. No one's giving him the town key. It's actually because of their familiarity with him, because they know him so well, that they fail to recognize him as the Messiah. They, and they reject him as the Messiah. It's because they're like, he's just an ordinary boy that we know. How he could he possibly be the Messiah King? That's why Jesus quotes an old proverb in verse 4 when he says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Yeah, three relational circles that he lists there. Each one is in that room. And with each one, the pain of rejection is worse. We're told in John 7 that Jesus' own siblings didn't believe that he was the Messiah. His own brothers and sisters didn't believe that he was the king, the saving king. Even James, who would end up writing a whole book of the Bible later on, he thought Jesus was totally nuts until after the resurrection. But here at this moment, long before the resurrection, people from his own hometown, his own family, they think he's crazy. Ordinary Jesus, how could he be the savior? 
You want to know, though, what the ultimate put-down in this text is? The ultimate put-down in this text, the ultimate rejection in this text is right there in verse 3 when they say, isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the son of Mary? And look, if we read it too quickly, if we read that question too quickly, and if we don't dig down into sort of the cultural context, then we might miss the fact that they're throwing some thick shade at Jesus with that question. Why? Because this society back then was a patriarchal society. And whenever you listed somebody's lineage, you always trace through the father. You always trace through the father. That's why the genealogies at the beginning of some of the gospels are always talk about how, you know, this man begat that man who begat that man, right? Like you always trace it through the father and not the mother. And so to call Jesus son of Mary was to point out the fact that we don't know who your dad is. To point out the fact that when Joseph married Mary, Jesus' mother, she was already pregnant with a child that wasn't his. Small town folk, don't forget a scandal like that. They don't forget things like that. They don't not talk about things like that. And so calling Jesus son of Mary was just another way of calling him a bastard. When they say, isn't this the son of Mary? They're saying, isn't this the bastard kid? How could this possibly be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah that came to save the world? In verses 5 and 6, we have some of the saddest verses um, in the Gospel of Mark. It says that he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Remember, our big question is, why was, why, why was Jesus so offensive in Nazareth, in his hometown? It's because these locals are thinking, look, there is no way, there's no way that this all-too-familiar bastard of a kid could possibly be the long-awaited king to end all kings. There's no way. They saw him grow up, and they're like, that's not who he is. And because of their unbelief, Jesus couldn't do mighty works around them. They, they wouldn't believe because of it. And then it says he marveled because of their unbelief. There's a couple things I want us to see really quick from that. First, familiarity is, is dangerous. Familiarity is dangerous. The truth is, even today, if you grew up in church, like even you, even you can get so familiar with our assumptions that we make about Jesus that we don't actually see him for who he is. Sometimes we get so familiar with Jesus that we don't actually see him for who he is. So if we're not paying attention, we can grow too familiar with him and we can grow numb to his power. That's when you come to church, you show up to home group, you sing the songs, but then it eventually grows tired and boring to you. You start to lose the wonder and beauty of Jesus. You start to lose the wonder of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And you forget that the Spirit of God is at work in your heart when you come to church. You forget that the Spirit of God is at work in your heart and in our community, inviting you not just to come to Jesus, but to marvel at him, to delight in him. You see, here, here in Orange County, we are experts at taking our blessings for granted, aren't we? 
we're, we're experts at taking our blessings for granted. Like I was thinking this week, um, my wife and I were talking this week of this, this awesome conversation that we had uh, with an old en- mentor of mine, Pastor, Pastor Bill Acton. Um, some of you guys know him. Uh, he just passed away actually a few days ago uh, at 97 years old. Um, but l- last year, uh, we were hanging out with him, and he was so excited to show us his new computer with a giant screen and these like thick, like huge keys because he's practically blind, right? And he's just so excited to show us his new computer. He'd never owned a personal computer in his life. And he was excited to show us his new computer, and he asked me how he could watch sermons on this computer. And when I told him, you know, well, you can go to this, this one website, and I explained it to him, uh, he leaned over and grabbed my hand, and he, he looked at me all confused, and he said, now, Chris, you used a word just now, website. What is that? And so I was like, how do, how do I explain what a website is, right? How do you explain what a website is? And so I'm like, well, it's like this place that you, you go. I mean, you don't physically go there, but you go there through your computer that's on the internet. And I was explaining how websites are like, that's what the internet is made up of. And then he grabs my hand again and leans over and he says, now, Chris, you used a word, internet. <laughs> like, no joke. He's like, what is that? Right? And this whole interaction was so comical, and it just made me stop and appreciate just the incredible times that we live in. Like, the world has changed a lot in my lifetime. Like, I turned 34, like, about half a year ago, so I'm barely old enough to remember what it was like to live in a world without the internet. Before Wikipedia, I had actually, like, in my room growing up, this 20-volume encyclopedia set. And so when I lost volume 17, it was like game over. I can no longer learn anything that starts with T or U, right? (laughs) We live in the most technologically advanced point in human history, and we take it for granted. We take it for granted, and, and the point here is that if you're not too careful, if you're not aware enough, then we can do the same thing with our faith. We can do the same with Jesus. Have you grown too familiar with the message of Jesus in your head that you don't have a sense of his majesty in your heart? Ask yourself that. Have I grown too familiar with the message of Jesus in my head that I don't have a sense of his majesty in my heart? Have I grown grown too accustomed to my Christianity that I don't actually know Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is the king that ends all kings. The true God of the universe. All glory, all power, all dominion belongs to him. He's the one who rescued us from the impending destruction of God's wrath. And he's the one who adopts us into the amazing comfort of God's family. He's both the destroyer of death and the lover of your soul. Have you grown too familiar with doing Christianity that you're no longer moved by just being with Christ, enjoying Christ? You see, familiarity can be dangerous if we're not careful. 
That's what happened to the people here in Nazareth. I want you to see something here in verse 6. It says, he marveled because of what? Their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Did you know that this is the only place in the Gospel of Mark that Mark records Jesus being amazed? This is the only place in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus marvels, that he's amazed. If you look at all four Gospels, there's only two places where Jesus is amazed. Once, when a centurion shows faith like no one else, and here, when the people in his hometown express their unbelief. The second thing I want us to see with that is that unbelief is also dangerous. Unbelief is dangerous. And look, you need to hear this because the surrounding culture actually tries to tell us that unbelief is the only way to really understand how things work. They say, you know, you have to clear your mind of anything superstitious or supernatural and only rely on human reason and experience to make sense of it all. They say, belief won't get you anywhere. They, they, you know, you, you got to just, you, you got to rely on, on, on reason. They kind of echo the thinking of, of Tom, Thomas Paine, that 18th century political theorist, who um, I, I think it's insightful the way he put it. He said, he's not a Christian, uh, one of our founding fathers uh, uh, of, of, in the United States. Uh, but he said, uh, I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know of. And look what he says next. He says, my mind is my own church. My mind is my own church. I mean, that's, that's kind of the predominant thinking of our times. That's pure enlightenment thinking. But what, what, what about you? Even if you're a follower of, of Jesus, I mean, you might read this and be like, oh, well, that's not me, right? Like, I've, I've moved beyond believe, talking like the way that Thomas, Thomas Paine talked. Like, maybe I talked that way in college, but maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not there anymore. But you got to stop and think, what do you do in those moments when you think that you know better than God does? What do you do in those moments when things are hard? When things don't make sense, when you think that you know better than God does, when you doubt God's truth, and when you doubt his promises. You see, unbelief is the distortion of what really is. It's a distrust of what God defines as true, of what's good, of what's beautiful. It's always dangerous and always destructive. Every single one of us, regardless of where you're at in the faith spectrum, like, is coming with some type of presupposition to what we think is true and how you determine that. Every single one of us does. Even if you say, like, no, like, I don't do that. Like, I only rely on human reason. Well, it's like, okay, well, then the, what told you? What told you to rely on human reason? That's your dogma. That's your doctrine. Every single one of us is coming up with doctrine and dogma that whether it's stated or unstated, that we are standing on. And these people in Nazareth, in Jesus' hometown, they chose to stand 
on the foundation of their own familiarity and their assumptions of who they thought Jesus was. And Jesus marveled at their belief. Question for you is, is Jesus amazed by your unbelief? Or are you amazed at his grace? You see, that's why Jesus marvels here. He's amazed that anyone would reject such a great salvation, or as we just sung, such an amazing grace. So how does he respond? How does he respond to their unbelief? I want you to see, we'll go really quick on this one, our last point. Number three, what do we do with the offensiveness of Jesus? How do we respond? Given the fact that Jesus is offensive to some, how do we respond? Like, how do we make sense of that? What do we do with that? Read the end of verse six with me. It says, he, Jesus, even after marveling at their unbelief, he went among the villages teaching. He went among the villages teaching. So what do you do with the offensiveness of Jesus? What do you do with the offensive message of Jesus? You do what Jesus did right here. You just press on. (laughs) You press on with the mission. You declare the message anyways. When God provides opportunities, when he opens doors, you proclaim it anyways. Knowing that the spirit of God will draw some people into the kingdom of God with that message, while others will be offended by it. That's what Jesus did. That's what, why he sent, what he sent his disciples to do, and that's what he sends us to do. He sent his disciples to push up against the kingdom of darkness with the good news of the kingdom of life. That's why in verse 7, he says, it says that he called the 12, the 12 disciples, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And in verse 12, he says, so they went out, In obedience, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And look, something I want you to to, to notice, and this is important. The goal is not to offend people, all right? The goal is not to offend people. Is the gospel of Jesus offensive to some? Yes. But the goal is not to offend people. The goal is to represent Jesus, And he, if you represent Jesus, some people will be attracted and some people will be offended. But let Jesus do that. Don't do that with your words or with your actions because the goal isn't to put down people, but to stand alongside people and to point them to Jesus. That's the goal. Did you catch that? Not to put down people, but to stand alongside them and point them to him. And so, look, if you actually never offend anybody, then chances are you're either lacking courage in your demeanor or you're lacking consistency in your message. But if you're always offensive, then you just might be what theologians call a jerk. (laughs) Right? You might just be a jerk. Like some of us are coming here from more of maybe a fundamentalist bent where like you used to take pride in offending others with your Christianity. Like, hey, if people are offended by my message, it's just because I'm being faithful with the message. It's just because they're of the world and I am not, right? And that might be true, or you just might be a jerk. And this, this, is, this, is, I mean, this is real talk that we need to hear because sometimes we, we get persecuted not because of being, uh, being righteous in Christ, but because we're being self-righteous. There's a difference. Sometimes we're being persecuted, not because we're being righteous in Christ, but because we're being kind of self-righteous. 
You got to see, though, that all throughout the book of Acts, when the gospel is sweeping the region, making disciples and planting churches, in the gospel of Acts, all of these new first century Christians actually found favor with their neighbors. They found favor with their neighbors. They were respected because they stood for justice. They stood for goodness and for beauty in ways that nobody else did at that time. They offended people, too. But they didn't only offend, they attracted and offended. And if Jesus is our model, and if he's our message, then the more that you are declaring the hope of Christ with your mouth and displaying the work of Christ in your life, then the more you will both attract some people and repel others. This is how it works. The gospel is offensive enough as it is. You don't need to add to that. The gospel is offensive enough as it is because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came to save sinners from God's wrath, from our own pride and self-destruction, that gospel, it offends all human pride. It offends all human pride because the point of the gospel message is that if we really are broken in sin, then we really are in need of a savior from outside ourselves. We want to get into God's kingdom because of our achievements, because of our views, because of our righteousness. Basically, we want to get in because we're awesome, right? But the gospel says, no, you're not awesome. You're not awesome, and you only get in by God's grace alone. Both the self-righteous person and the prodigal son both get in by God's grace alone. And that's offensive. So don't add to the offensiveness of the gospel by being a jerk about it. But also don't shy away from the gospel either because you're afraid of offending others when God gives you opportunities. You see, instead, you press on like Jesus did. You press on in, 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 in prayer. You press on in faithfulness like he did and like he sent the disciples to do and like he now sends us to do. Ask yourself the question, am I willing to risk, even with a gracious demeanor, am I willing to risk offending someone if that means bringing true hope to that person? Am I willing to risk offending somebody if that means that they get real hope? Am I willing to risk offending someone if it brings beauty to the world? If it improves our culture, the work that we do in the world. Do you want to know the key to living faithfully in that tension? To live in the tension of having a grace, gracious demeanor that's inviting and that's hospitable and welcoming? And if you've been here at King's Cross, you know that that's very much like our, our, our posture. We want to be hospitable. We want to be safe. We want to be welcoming. But we also want to be faithful. We also want to be true. We want to contend for truths that even though they're good and beautiful, not everyone will see them that way. And so how do you live in that tension? You want to know what the key is to living in that tension? Where you both have a humble posture that draws some people in and a holy perseverance in the mission to make disciples? The key is to look to Christ. The key is to look to Jesus Christ and to marvel at him. 
The key is to look to Jesus and to marvel at him. He is the one who was not only rejected as a bastard in his hometown, but he was rejected on the cross when God the Father turned his face away from him. As Jesus stood in our place for our sin, taking on the penalty which we deserve to pay, but that he did not, through enduring that rejection, he gained our acceptance. Through enduring that rejection, he gained our acceptance and the acceptance of the rest of his people that we have yet to share the gospel with, share hope with. And because of his rejection that he gained our acceptance, we can now be sons and daughters of the living God. Sons and daughters of the living God. Where it doesn't matter who you get rejected by because your name as sons and daughters of the living God is in the book of life. And you have a place in the kingdom of life. And our new identity, in our new identity, we now have the privilege of participating alongside Jesus with his help in his historic mission that he's been doing throughout the ages to make disciples that make disciples, to plant churches that plant churches. Jesus came to stand in our place to save us and to save us in our unbelief. He gives us faith and he makes us new so that we can marvel at his grace and then invite others to do the same. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.